0: I've walked the path less travelled by, which definitely for my generation is quite common because product management as a career wasn't something you really came out of school or university and went to study or do. It was something that was emerging and had a lot of career switches.
1: This is The Talent Show a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under 30s for the under 30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. So with me today, I am going to explore with you guys um, another department of the Financial Times, something that we have been chatting a lot about, product, product development, technology and so on. And now we have the person that can answer all our questions. And this is the chief product officer of the Financial Times, Lindsay Jane. How are you, Lindsay, today? I'm very well. Thank you. It's so lovely to be with you. So as we normally start um, our podcast, we always try to ask our guests to to walk us through your career path, thing that um, made you land here at the Financial Times and uh, um, things that you believe have been uh, milestones of your work life journey. Yeah, I think the way to summarise it would probably
0: be to say, I've walked the path less travelled by which definitely for my generation is quite common because product management as a career wasn't something you really came out of school or university and went to study or do. It was something that was emerging and had a lot of career switches. Um, So for me, the common thread that's kind of led to where I am today has been always working on brands that had meaning for me, um, that I had a deep interest in the product uh, that I thought made a big difference. Um, An example of that would be uh, definitely the FT, the, the thing that drew me in here was how important accurate information was, integrity. Um, I thought the the heritage and what we had done with the brand was just, you know, so inspiring and what a thing to work on that. But also, for instance, when I was at Monzo, where we were really changing people's relationships with money and taking the stress out of it, taking the taboos out of it. Um, so for me, the the guiding principle through my career has been very much about working on things that I find meaningful. And in terms of how I ended up in product management, well, that's that's a wild old ride. I did everything from uh, taking a leave of absence during university when I wasn't very well, uh, leaving South Africa where I'd grown up, coming over to the UK, and finding that it wasn't financially viable to go back to South Africa and back to university. So uh, a very homesick Lindsay. Um, stole a friend's idea to become cabin crew and I actually went to work for Virgin Atlantic flying long haul on planes because it was a way to get cheap travel and it was a way to to work my way around the world whilst I saved up enough money to go back to university and what I ended up doing was studying Japanese, was studying wine, I did an undergrad degree through the London School of Economics part-time whilst I was flying and at the end of seven years I came out of it having seen the world um, but also having had the, the really wonderful experience of working with the Royal College of Art, I think it was, on service design. And it was at the time when Virgin Atlantic were designing the upper class experience where you started off in your limousine and you were whisked through security and your luggage disappeared and you just landed up in a lounge and you got on a plane and got tucked in a duvet and woke up in New York. So we were thinking about, for the first time, a user's journey all the way through. Um, but that was good fun. And then I thought I'd probably better go get a real job. And travel was still dear to my heart, so I had gone off to join uh, government. I thought I would like, quite like to be a diplomat. The French ambassador's residence looked pretty awesome. Uh, it felt like, you know, a public service, a good thing to do. But it wasn't long into government before I realised that hierarchy and slowness were not my calling cards. And I saw somebody walk past carrying a laptop that was a Mac. And I was like, why does that person have a fast computer? Mine takes 12 minutes to boot up in the morning. And it was there I discovered the government digital service. It was just setting up and it was the startup inside government where we were, for the first time we were building our own services using developers, where we were really starting with the customer's need. At that time, every government website, and there were literally hundreds and hundreds of them and for broader government thousands, they were all different. So if I needed to know something for my child about its, you know, Uh, Can I get help with my nursery bills? Uh, Where do I go to school? I would have to go to five different departments. And for the first time, we flipped that on its head and said, no, we start with the user. What do they need? They have a question and we should make it easy to navigate. And from that... Uh, Yeah, I just went from one product job to another, uh, working uh, Farfetch, which was a global luxury platform, uh, working at Monzo, leading the product function there, their first product leader um, via a South African fintech that was very dear to my heart during the pandemic, uh, and now here at the FT. So always working on brands where we're looking at growth, where we're looking at how to stay relevant, where we're looking at engaging more, but always really answering that question, how can we do the thing that's valuable
1: for the user that meets the company's goals. I think this user-centricity is really interesting and it's something that you know we have been trying to explain from so many different perspectives, from the editorial one, the commercial one, and now of course, from uh, the core part of where you can really show that you are audience first rather than product first, that is really the product and the product side of our business. Mm, listening to your experience, How did you adapt such a mindset to a product um, and uh, um, chief product officer role in a a kind of structured culture and business as the one of media that is definitely not the one of Monzo and uh, Farfetch, etc.? Yeah, I think a lot of the principles actually hold, which is
0: that the role of a product manager is to take different expertise and different inputs and bring them together and use judgment and sort of being able to discern to find out what the most valuable solution is to something. And if you're working in banking, sometimes that meant I had lawyers in my team along with engineers and software developers and you were designing with those things in mind. And in those sorts of organisations, they do tend to sort of centre around a product in that sort of sense. Whereas clearly in media... The thing that we're here to support, the, the product really, is is the content that our journalists produce. And our role is very, very much more so about how do we get that to people in the right way? How do we help them find the most value in it? How might we think about packaging it up to meet different people's needs? How can we help tell the story in a more visually arresting way? Um, so the the problems are sometimes different because you are working with a part of the you know the bulk of the product already made Mm -hmm. but the principles are still there if I get you know an editor in a room with a software developer uh, and a designer and we've got some user research and some data we're going to come up with something really interesting and I think that's what you do see in some of the newer organizations set up is they're sort of setting up with those capabilities from the start at the FT we added it's been around so long that the internet didn't exist when, we, when it was started. And so we added it on later. But where we really do our best work, I think, is where we pull on the expertise of everybody and the product manager uses their kind of deep knowledge to bring all of that together into a, a cohesive experience for the user and into something that makes the FT a sustainable business.
1: What is a product? When you're thinking about a newspaper, I think it's quite obvious to think about the physical newspaper, that is the product. When we're thinking about FT.com, that's a sort of a product. In in your head right now, if you had to think, this is the product that uh, my team is really focusing on at the moment, and maybe the most innovative product that you are actually working on.
0: Yeah, so the, the simplest way we describe it is a product that is something that you can stand alone by itself and that you could sell or give away. So to give you an example, if you use FT, maybe you use MyFT and you follow topic bubbles and there's a little page in there where you can get a personalised feed. That's not a product because you need the rest of the FT for that to work. So the way we describe a product is something that could stand alone and be offered to somebody and have value. Um, and how we think about prioritising is actually really not on a product level, it's on an outcome level. So we might have an objective to engage a more diverse audience or to uh, reach more readers in the United States or listeners, or we might have a goal to grow our subscription base or diversify away. So what we start with is that outcome, and then we go, okay, what are the ways we might do that? So I'll give you an example. When we look at people who cancel their FT subscriptions, shh, please <laughs> don't do that, um, and we ask them, why? Why did you cancel? A large number of them say, I wasn't getting enough out of it. So you're like, okay, great. So that tells us that they aren't necessarily finding the value they need. And we'll make something called like a decision tree. And we'll say, what are the ways we could change that? Maybe it's about how they discover content. Maybe it's about how we recommend it to them. Maybe it's about their routine and when they log in. And we look at the different ways we can affect that. And then we'll design an intervention to see whether it works and we'll measure it before And we'll measure it afterwards and we'll see whether it worked. Or we'll send out a few different versions into the world and let people test different versions. You might have heard of A, B or multivariate testing. Um, But then asking me what my favorite child is, asking me to pick amongst the products is really, really challenging. We're very lucky. And this is the beauty of being a chief product officer is that you get a whole product portfolio. And at the FT, um, our main products uh, are products we build for individual subscribers then we have products we are building for corporations or universities or organizations. We have a, an events business and then we have a bunch of niche specialist publications as well. And then we actually build a bunch of really cool in-house stuff. So every time one of our journalists writes a story or a freelancer writes a story, uh, they do that on a on a content management system called spark that we built ourselves in fact you can actually even get paid on it because that was part of the workflow of going i've pressed published now it's time to pay me Um, so we have something interesting happening in all those different places Um, but personally my passion the thing that that i'm really interested in is is this idea of we have this amazing heritage this amazing core pink paper or core pink online experience but what are we doing to diversify and to grow and to reach a new audience uh, and for me, that's that's a really interesting and hard problem.
1: And I think when we're looking at new generations and how they interact differently with uh, our products, def- definitely Gen Z, I think it's, it's an interesting opportunity and challenge for legacy brands. Um, what's your view on that? What do you think um, the products that we have now that... Uh, are a good fit for a digital native and maybe things that you can give us a bit of teasers (laughs) that you're working on or your team is focusing on at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think for a very long time it was true that people just uh, almost aged into the FT. You got to a certain point in your career and an FT subscription just made sense. And we saw this hold true for generations um, but I think a combination of sort of uh, internet area technologies, the pandemic, new generations have me- meant that that's not really true. Um, and so we are looking to reach a broader audience. And certainly myself, I got the FT during my MBA for free and was really surprised at the breadth of coverage. I thought it was all old men in boiler hats, um, you know, talking about economics. And there I was reading the best running routes in Paris or where to get a cheese toastie in Margate or reading about more geopolitical stuff. And I became hooked through that. Um, so for me, I think price is something that's quite interesting. You know, if you're earlier in your career, are you making the investment in a in a premium product? It's it, The FT can be quite, uh, I think, absolutely worth it, but it's it's not, you know, the same price of a, as a bottle of milk on your weekly shop. Yeah. Um, so I think that the products like FT Edit, um, we've also been doing some experimenting with newsletters that you can subscribe to, uh, kind of open up, uh, make it accessible, accessible on price. And then on format, I think you're seeing a, a lot more from us. Our audience engagement team are awesome. There's a lot more explainer videos on, on things like Insta. Um, but at the end of the day, we aren't actively going after Gen Z. You know, that it doesn't totally resonate with our brand. But I think there's a lot of really important content in there that people should be paying attention
1: to, you know, whatever age you should be. This is very interesting. Did, do you think you needed to tweak or change your expertise um, on people and the audiences uh, with the FT experience. How do you change your approach in terms of like uh, audience know-how and expertise? Yeah, I think to be
0: really good at your job as a product manager, you have to be a total nerd. You have to be a total nerd about what's happening in the market, what technology is doing, um, and you have to be a total nerd about your customers. And it's a lot easier to do that when you are your customer Because you, although you have to be careful of your own bias there as well. But whatever it is, I think just spending a lot of time with your customers and understanding them, you have your job is to go meet them where they are. If you want to reach an audience, go find where they are, go find the formats they use, go find their daily routines. And we do research studies where we ask people, they might do a diary study, show us how their day happens. You know, you hear the wonderful stories of people opening up the The paper at the weekend with coffee, you know, very picturesque. So I think it kind of doesn't matter who your audience is. You have to get to know them. And sometimes you have to work a little harder. You know, I really had to work hard to understand the Chinese audience when I was at Farfetch building, you know, WeChat mini programs. One of the first things I did when I got to the FT was say, give me a headset. I want to go sit and listen to customer care.
1: I want to to know what people are phoning us to complain about. Any other tips for people that are thinking about a career in uh, product? Mm. Yeah, I think
0: product is one of those disciplines where there's an awful lot written about it. Everybody has an opinion, right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there and some of it really is is quite special. Um, and it's not something you can go to university to study. You can a bit now, actually. There are product courses and, and some of the business schools are specializing. Um but it's an interesting set of skills because you do need to know enough about everybody else's role to be able to challenge and collaborate effectively. I need to understand technology well enough. Uh, I need to understand design and user research well enough. Um, But I think ultimately product management comes down to two things, judgment and people. Um, The first one is, is this ability to think critically, reasoning to really get underneath something and understand why. Can you debate and somebody pull your ideas apart? Because you really, you you know, the biggest challenge in, in product management is prioritization, choosing what to build because there's so many amazing ideas. So you have to be really sure of your reasoning and really sure of the thing that you've done and you've gone deep and you're sure that this idea stacks up. And then the other one is people skills because you're going to be right in the middle. You're going to be pulled in every direction. Somebody, you know, the chief financial officer thinks the button should be red. You know, marketing thinks we should go after that. Everybody's going to have a different opinion. You have to bring all of those people together, get the best out of them, manage their expectations, and make sure you don't end up with the lowest common denominator because you've, yeah. you've kind of aggregated. So at the end of the day, it's a... There are specialist skills, there's understanding what makes a good A-B test or whether this is the right metric or how to release to the app store. But the, the thing that's been really powerful or the best product managers I've seen are the ones who are like, am I constantly learning and getting feedback and working on are my ideas good, do they
1: stack up, and can I really bring a team together? What uh, do you think are uh, your best tips for someone that is um, starting their career? What would be um, your tips in giving the right storytelling that you gave us today for someone that that is not so clear about the beginning of a career path?
0: Yeah, I think there are as many career paths that are workable as there are stars in the sky. So I'm not sure that there is one clear path that that makes the most sense. I mean, I've worked in a range of industries, but always on the same kind of product problem. And then you get people who've had product careers that have been very much about going deep into a particular industry. And both of those have merit and have value. Um, For me, I've just followed my nose to the next most interesting opportunity. And it's only in looking back that it all makes sense. For me, working on meaningful problems with really interesting people has made me better at my job and better at interviews and better at finding the next opportunity, I think, than being very kind of like in five years, I want this and, you know, I, I'm missing this skill, so I'll go get it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I would caveat that with is you've kind of always constantly got to be learning. Over the last few months i i've been in a deep learning mode on generative ai this is a you know a subject i need to understand very very clearly because for the last 10 years the platforms we worked on have been relatively stable you know there's been advances in tech but no huge leaps and then this comes along so i need to be as knowledgeable as you know somebody who's specializing in these products if i want to stay relevant so i think yeah good teams good problems keep learning and and i kind of let the path work itself out but you know, you do you, there's probably a better
1: way. What's your What's your take on AI and the FT and generally AI and journalism? I ultimately do think of it as a tool. Um,
0: coming back to the FT for a second, I think that you know, even with the misinformation uh, campaigns that we've seen in the past, with trying to influence elections, um, with whether or not you can trust what you read out on social media, out in other publications, it's this reputation for trust and integrity and accuracy and holding truth to power that sets us apart. And that's the thing that we need to protect over and above everything else. That's non negotiable. And I think that becomes easier. Uh, or uh, almost in a way becomes easier when there's more noise in the system. But it also becomes harder because how do you trust your sources? How do you verify? And that's where I think the technology can also help. And whilst today there are a lot of downfalls to how, you know, the lack of alignment to hallucinations in large language models to the biases inherent in underlying training sets uh, in fine-tuning training sets, and I'm sure as well uh, in synthetic data when we get there is there are a lot of pitfalls so you have to go in with your eyes very open but you have to learn how to work it and to experiment and, and the way we're thinking about it is we're not designing for what you know large language models can do today we're designing for what they'll be able to do in a year because i believe some of these problems will be resolved and some we will probably fail to resolve because as society we're not perfect and if you look at regulation and cookies regulation we didn't do a good job there we have a way to go on tech regulation so i think some of them we won't be perfect on and we should i i feel very strongly that we have a strong responsibility to be to champion what's ethical, to to make sure there's a diversity of voice in there, to maintain our accuracy and our integrity, but at the same time, it's transformative, exciting tech, and you better believe we're playing around with it. Uh, in fact, we demoed some stuff just the other day uh, to to some people uh, around the company as we as we start to learn what the limits are and, and what it's useful. Be, um, but I think it's a huge differentiator that the FT has said. Our work will always be by the experts, and we'll use these tools in in ways that support you know, finding the best scoops and and helping our readers find the best information out of what we've covered and what's out there in the world.
1: How do you keep up with all the innovations, with all these uh, different parts and, um, you know, as well, areas of knowledge? So my way of learning
0: really is is using the networks and connections and people I've made to sit down and go, hey, there's things come out. What have you read that's interesting? Um, So a lot of how I learn tends to be about sharing with people stuff I've found interesting and starting a conversation in Slack groups, um, you know, uh, actual conversations, dinner parties, at conferences, those sorts of things, small community talks, uh, and then also asking people to do the same
1: for me, say, what's interesting? What have you heard out there? What have you read? what would be your best tip to your younger self that has the enthusiasm maybe of a startupper, and knows how things work in a, a bit of, like, you know, quicker and digital-driven words, but is picking maybe the FT as a place to work and really shine and grow a career. I think the thing
0: that really has struck me, because I've had quite a few jobs in, in my career, I've, I've been lucky enough to work in a couple of different organisations, is wherever you go, there you are. So don't think that if you change companies, you'll face different problems, even if the company looks different on the face of it. You know, at the FT, it is much bigger. Turning this tanker does take longer. It's a bigger prize if you pull it off. But uh, a lot of your energy goes into making things possible and less into making them as a, as a leader. Um, and then the teams are there doing the great work of making. But who you are and the things that... You know, am I good at influencing people? Am I good at hearing the quieter voices? Can I spot an interesting opportunity? Can I galvanize people who are not in my team behind this? That's going to be a skill that, that plays out wherever you go. So I often interview people. I've interviewed literally thousands of people. So I work at the FT four days a week. And then on my fifth, I still consult with startups and scale-ups and, scale ups and, and yeah. mentor heads of products in, in scale-ups. And everybody tells me about how they want to change companies to solve their problems. And I I would just say, yeah, some of it is the environment, some of it is the subject matter, but always, always remember that if you move, probably you, you're you're taking yourself with you when you move. So, uh, yeah, the thing I would tell my younger self is just keep working on you
1: because that's the constant in your career. This was really, really good. And I believe it was so interesting because um, we could hear a bit more the personal uh, um, opinion that you have. And from, of course, being user-centric in this business, being data-informed, I believe we really went a bit into your life journey and really understand what is your approach, of course, to product, but generally to your career. If there is one thing that we do in this podcast, is inviting two bright students to ask you directly some questions. Welcome back to the studio, Alex and Nadira. Alex, I'll start with you. Tell us a bit about you.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Alex McQuibbin. Um, I'm a graduating, hopefully, if marking boycotts allow, a student at UCL reading PPE. Um, and I'm sort of... a I guess an aspiring journalist, but also aspiring philosophy academic. Uh I've worked at a couple of publications. Uh sort of student journalism type stuff.
1: All right, what's your question for Lindsay?
2: Um so originally I was gonna ask about AI, but you've sort of massively covered that topic already. Um so on the on the same note you talked about uh how sort of AI is muddying the water uh, when it comes to truth. So do you think we're living in a sort of or, or soon to be living in a in a post-truth world? Um, how do we deal with it? And is there anything at all that's good about a sort of post-truth attitude towards journalism?
0: Wow, it's got deep with the with the PPE student really, really quick. I don't, I don't know about. I mean, the thing about truth, right, is to a certain extent it's relative and it's a perspective, and there is, you know, what can you actually hold to be true? Um, and I think that there will always be and there have always been sort of shining lights trying to trying to keep that thing true or trying. I I don't think that will change. I think that we will always there will always be communities, there will always be voices, there will always be businesses that kind of care about making sure that the, the real story is out there. Uh, and I think, you know, journalism is definitely an exciting place to be to be working when you're when you're thinking about truth because you've literally got people on the front lines risking their lives to make sure that the, the story does reach us. So, um, you know, in a couple of dark moments, I, a few sci-fi movies have hit me. I won't lie. I had a chat actually with one of our directors of tech. We're doing this like, imagine the world in, you know, two years and then 10 years and how do we extrapolate and what does look? It... There were some dark moments. Um, but ultimately, I'm an optimist. And I think that, yeah. That that the way humans have always been is kind of the
1: way we always will be, and there will always be those points of light. What's your take on that from a philosophical perspective?
2: I mean, I've 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 been scared about the sort of post truth stuff uh, probably since 2016. Uh, not saying why, um, but yeah, no, I I think I share your optimism. I think there is a slight relativeness to truth, at least in in social context. Um, I think maybe the one good thing to come out of it is that a lot of journalists are realising that not only do they have to write about the truth, they also have to write well, and they have to, you know, actually get an audience. Um, so, you know, you can't just, you know, list off a bunch of facts. You actually have to bring in some personality and some character to your stories.
0: Tell a story, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not just uh, not just
1: recite the facts. Yeah. Nadira, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good. Yeah, What 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 are you doing here in London? So I am a student at King's
0: College London and I study the BA Digital Media and Culture. So I will be graduating this
2: summer and I hope to do my master's degree in science communications at Imperial so that hopefully I can be a technology journalist focusing on
0: how technology is represented in society and in the media as well. So I wanted to ask you what has been the most rewarding part of your role as a chief product officer? Because I know you so spoke about how you find your your career and your own personal journey to link together. So I wanted to ask what maybe is perhaps a memorable project or experience that you have worked on? Whilst at the FT? Oh, that's a great question. Um I- probably have some deep recency bias here but i think literally getting some of the the generative ai things we were playing around with working yesterday i was really really proud of our team who pu- who pushed themselves and i a lot of my my best experiences really have been about watching the team do something they didn't think was was possible and absolutely nailing it with a with a great product um yeah, I, there've been lots of great moments along the way. It, we do we do things like show and tells, where every week we show something that we're working on. So we have a lot of these like micro celebrations of, you know, yes, you got this thing right. Um, but one of the things I've really enjoyed about the FT actually is is having the newsroom just you know right down there like uh i you know had an awesome conversation with Madhu, who's our who covers ai and is our technology correspondent or you know you get to bump into people who are deep researchers and deep experts in in things that you care about um and they're around to chat to uh which has been wonderful but i don't know i think my big successes are still to come or my big favorite moments a lot of i've been at the ft just a year now so a lot of it has been getting the right team in place and, and doing things. But we're, we're, we're building some pretty cool stuff. And it's it's always great when you see a user's reaction or you get um, an amazing quote. We had one the other day. Someone wrote in the, the most beautiful letter of thanks about a migration of a visualization of a migration of Swifts flying from Beijing to uh, Namibia, which is actually in a book review, um, but we built this capability that meant it's super easy to visualise data on maps. Uh, that's really easy for our newsroom to use, and so storytelling became much richer because anybody, you know, with with relative ease, can now bring the story alive in this kind of visual way. Uh, and having someone write in and go, "Hey, I really like this," you know, it's amazing that you did this. is is always nice.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, for your questions. And of course, thank you so much, Lindsay, for all your time and your insights and being, uh, you know, so open in sharing uh, your opinions and, of course, your life journey with us. Just a quick reminder, we got An Edge, but it's a new podcast from The Financial Times. I really recommend you to check it out and up for the next episode. Thank you so much. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening.